This is the last section of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, what we've seen before this has all been kind of one singular focused sermon and what we get in chapters 31 through 34 is somewhat like an appendix and the thing that ties it all together we'll read about right here in the opening verses is the death of Moses the closure of the story of Moses and so we pick up in verse 1 so Moses continued to speak all these words to all Israel and he said to them I'm 120 years old today I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go, will go over your head as the Lord has spoken. And so effectively he says, I'm at the end of my life. My role is coming to an end. You're going to enter into the promised land, but I am not allowed to do so. And then effectively he says, but don't be afraid because the same God who has been with us, the same God who worked in you and through me and provided for you and fought your battles, he is going to continue on with you even though I don't. And then he reminds them as well that his leadership is being handed off to Joshua at the command of God. Then he has them look back into the past, verse 4, the Lord will do to them, the occupants of the land, as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Abarites, and to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so one of the things that we should notice here, there's not much of a timeline in the last four chapters. It could be as short as a day, the final day of Moses's life. Um, but it's probably not longer than a week or maybe at maximum two. But effectively, what this is, is Moses getting his house in order, as we'll see in just a second. And so the first thing he does is he gives a final exhortation to Israel to be strong, to be courageous, uh, to know that even though Moses will leave them, God will not. Then there's a presentation of Joshua in verse 7. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, that's important, okay, this is the beginning of the transition of leadership. And so with all of Israel present, he speaks to Joshua and he repeats what he's just said to Israel, but directly to him, be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So you can see here, the second thing he does after he gives this final exhortation to Israel, he gives a commission to Joshua. Lead these people, be strong and courageous. Um, the Lord will go before you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Another thing he does is he takes what we are currently reading or what we have uh, earlier read and he writes it down. He puts it in print. 
What it refers to here in verse 9, notice it says, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi. Now, let's just make a couple of obvious statements. When we read these words, then Moses wrote this law, it's very unlikely that Moses penned those words, right? That he's speaking in the third person and he's writing as a final act as if um, this reoccurrence of history in written form in the book of Deuteronomy catches up on itself and spills into the present. As I mentioned, these last couple of chapters are, um, are an appendix to the book. But nonetheless here, when it refers to the law of Moses and refers to it as being this law of Moses, it's clearly referencing the bulk of what we know as Deuteronomy and maybe, maybe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As we mentioned when we started Deuteronomy, starting with Exodus and all the way through Deuteronomy, each one of those books begins with the word and. It's really one continuous, ongoing narrative. Okay, penned from one consistent narrator. Okay, and so either way, he writes down the majority of what we've uh, what we've read, and he gives it to the priests, the sons of Levi, continuing in verse nine, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord into all the elders of Israel, and Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feasts of booths. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So why are these things written down? They're written down to be read. They're written down to be reviewed. They're written down so that later generations would be exposed to the covenant that God has made with Israel and Moses' exposition of it here in Deuteronomy. Now this leads us to something that's really, really interesting. As we close out the book of Deuteronomy, there's this emphasis on being written down. We've seen it a few times in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, And so already in Israel's history, they're becoming a people of the book. They're becoming a people who are dependent upon writing. Now it's worth mentioning at this time, and even into the first century when the New Testament was penned, literacy was a uncommon reality. And so what that meant is the majority of people's exposure to what we know as the Bible or the scriptures would have been audible as it was read aloud to them. In fact, Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. That's to be a part of the practice. So so they're a literary people even though a majority of them at this time, pre-modern education, would have been illiterate. But ever since the beginning, all the way from when the first books of the Bible were penned, God's people had a book, a book of significance, a book they were to review, had scriptures. Now here's the next thing that's very interesting. Deuteronomy finishes here with the penning of this book, and Joshua, our next book, opens with a call to meditate on the book. Notice what I mean. Just flip over a few chapters here to Joshua chapter 1. Specifically here, God is speaking directly to Joshua. And what I want to draw your attention to is in verse uh, 7. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Now listen to this. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
Okay, and so here in Joshua, we find a reference to this same writing of Moses that here is called the book of the law, and he's called to meditate on it. Now, here's why that's significant. In Hebrew thinking, the Old Testament breaks into three sections. In fact, these three sections don't follow our Bible very well, where our three sections are the history of Israel from Genesis all the way through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, and then the poetic books, and then the prophets, starting with Isaiah and finishing with Malachi, right? The sections of the Hebrew Bible are different. It's the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses or the law, and then it's the prophets, which has two parts, the former prophets, which begins with Joshua and goes all the way through uh, Kings, and then the latter prophets, which begins with Isaiah and goes all the way through Malachi, and then the writings, okay? Now, the writings open with Psalms, but they also include books like Ruth, like Daniel, Chronicles, okay? So the order is a little bit different. In fact, as we go through the Bible, we're actually going to follow the Hebrew order because it, it does significant things um, when you understand things in this way. But here's the point I want to make. Between the seams of the law to the prophets and the prophets to the Psalms, we find the same pattern. Okay. And so Joshua opens with a call to meditate on the writings that have been given in the law. Now, when we get to the end of the prophets proper and we open the Psalms and get into the third section, how does it begin? With Psalm 1, which is a psalm about the importance of meditating on the word of God. Okay. And so these three major sections are strung together with a call of the importance of the book and of um, chewing on the book, of thinking on the book, of living in light of the book, right? And so Psalm 1 opens and says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but on the law of God he meditates day and night. He's like a tree firmly planted by the stream, you know, uh, who will bear an abundance of fruit in all seasons, etc., etc. Okay, and so there's this intentional editorial emphasis on the importance of the scriptures and engaging with them regularly in the life of God's people. But here in Deuteronomy, we see the actual record of the penning of the books, the beginning of what we know as the Bible. Okay, and so getting back to this, he calls Israel to review this regularly, and I want you to notice when, going back to verse 10, Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, okay? And so we get a couple of details here. It's to be every seventh year, and it refers to that seventh year as the year of release, now, we learned in the book of Deuteronomy that every seven years, there was to be a pattern of... Um, of all slavery being broken. So if you served as an Israelite, you could only serve up to the next seventh year uh, period. And that on that seventh year, all of that was to come to an end. Okay. So the first thing we see of significance is in the year when the slaves become free. The second thing we say, see is during the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths is in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, and it's a, uh, one of the high holidays, which means that um, all the men from 13 and up were required to travel, it was a pilgrimage, required to travel to Jerusalem 
to observe this holiday. And while they lived there, they wouldn't check out an, uh, a room in a local hotel. They would actually set up these structures, these booths. They would take palm branches and sticks and build, uh, build these booths to sleep in at night. And they're specifically told that they're to lay out the thatching of the roof with these palm branches in such a way that they can see the stars. Okay. And we learn that the Feast of Booths is to be an uh, embodied reminder of God's faithfulness to take care of Israel in the wilderness. Okay. So it's during this feast, in the year the slaves are re- released, that they are to review the book of Moses, the book of the law, maybe as much as the five books we know as the Torah. It's to be read publicly. Do you see the significance of that? Just as Israel was brought out from slavery in Egypt and then brought faithfully through the wilderness, so also when people experience that from themselves, it's then that the story is read, it's then that the covenant is reviewed, it's then when Israel is reminded of what God has done and what God has called them to. So they're to do this every seven years, and I want you to notice who's involved So it says, verse 11, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. So notice here, That unlike the other holidays where only the men were required and the families could stay at home, on this occasion in the seventh year during the Feast of Booths, all of Israel was to be present. Why? For the reading of this law, for the review of the covenant. Not only were all Israelites, but any foreigner or sojourner living in the land was to be present as well. Okay? It specifically mentions here that even the children are to be present, and it explains the logic behind that in the following verse, 13. And that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over to the Jordan possess. So on a seven-year rotation, at least twice in your childhood, you would hear, read aloud, the entirety of the law, okay? And so this was to be a rhythm so that following generations would be familiar with and faithful to the covenant. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in the pillar of the cloud, and the pillar of the cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Notice again that this new section begins with another reminder of Moses' impending death. We'll see that woven through the next four chapters. And here, both Joshua and Moses are called to the tabernacle into the presence of God, and this is what they're told, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after their foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them. And so God is laying out the reason for what he's about to do. And the first reason he gives is, look, you're about to die. Now notice here it says that he is going to lie down with his fathers. 
This is one of the small references in the Old Testament to a belief in an afterlife, okay? And some scholars for a while tried to explain this away and say, no, 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 it's just a familial burial plot. But as we'll see with Moses, that's not what happens. He's buried in total isolation. No one even knows where his grave is. He's not buried with his father. He goes to his father's. You see a similar emphasis in the book of Genesis. If you follow chronologically the statements, they are buried and then gathered to their fathers. That's the way that it's put. And so the significance here is um, kind of like finishing a race and then running into, you know, the crowd of people who were watching the race, being embraced by the people who were just looking on. That's the idea of gathered to your fathers here. Um, And so first, you're going to die. And then second, the people are going to forsake me. These are the reasons that God gives. And then he gives these instructions Well, a little bit more explanation in verse 17. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not those evils come upon us because God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they've turned to other gods. And so he says, not only are they going to forsake him, But in response, he's going to hide his face from them and bring upon them consequences. If you were with us last week, we read extensively about this as Moses walked through the consequences of unfaithfulness in the covenant. But everything we've read so far is just the foundation of what happens next. Moses, because you're going to die. Moses, because the people are going to forsake me. Moses, because I'm going to bring upon them consequences. Then, verse 18, now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Because these things are going to happen, I want you to write down this song and teach all of Israel to sing it. It's interesting, isn't it? In fact, it's interesting because we've already read in this same law of Moses recorded all of the consequences that are to come and they're to be written down as a warning so Israel would know up front the cost of forsaking, uh, you know, their God. But here he says also, I want you to teach them a song about it. I want you to put the words in their mouth and he explains the logic here uh, in verse, um, verse 20. For when I've, uh, sorry, at the end of verse 19, put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. I don't know if you've ever had this uh, happen to you, but every once in a while, parents have songs that they teach their children uh, that, that speak specifically or moralistically or ethically into your life as a little kid. This is just coming to me now, so I can't actually think of one except for the cleanup song that I sing with my kids. But I do specifically remember having occasions in my childhood where I was engaging in some sort of misbehavior and a song about some sort of misbehavior popped into my head, right? There's this reminder. That's the idea of Israel is even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, There's this earworm, this catchy tune they know that's calling them back, that's reminding them of it, and specifically, being a witness against them. If there's one thing Israel can't say when God brings about consequence because of their unfaithfulness later in their history, it's, we didn't know. We weren't aware. We didn't think it was that big of a deal. 
right? A later prophet says that God will not leave himself without a witness. And we discover reading Deuteronomy that God has left himself with multiple witnesses. And so there's the rereading of the blessings and curses that happens every seven years. There's the creed that we saw that when the first fruits are brought uh, every year at the Feast of Pentecost, the Israelites had to repeat after me with the priest this saying, a rehashing of their history and a denial that they have not kept the covenant, right? And here we see that there's a song that they're to learn themselves, to sing regularly, to teach their children, and to maintain. And as we'll see, the song is not a happy song. It's pretty intense, but it's to be a witness. And so verse 20 For when I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give their fathers, and they've eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Notice the order there. First, I'm going to provide for them abundantly, and in that abundance, they're going to forsake me. This is not in times of difficulty or starvation, times of doubt It's in the best, in the fat of the land, as they've grown fat on the land themselves, that they will turn and begin to worship idols. Verse 21, and when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. In other words, uh, in the Psalms it says, out of the mouth of babes you have perfected praise. And here we see that Israel's own children would prophesy against them because they'd constantly be singing this song, right? And it'd be this constant witness, the constant reminder of both Israel's unfaithfulness and that the consequences, the judgment they're experiencing is is their fault. And so Moses finishes, uh, or God finishes here saying, for I know what they are inclined to do, even today, before I've brought them into the land that I swore to give. And so here we see that this isn't just prophetic. It's not just, I know what they're going to do. He says, I know what their natures are. Okay? The problem of Israel is not just something God foresees, as if he made a bad choice. The problem of Israel is something that goes to the very core of their being, just like it goes to the very core of our being, okay? And he says, so he commissions this song, verse 23, the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore that I would give them. I will be with you. That almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Now, one reason this probably is, if you look at the closing chapters that we're looking at tonight of the book of Deuteronomy, they are so intertwined and interwoven. We're following so many threads at once. It's kind of like the happy montage at the conclusion of a film where all of the threads are coming together. And so it's showing, you know, with some sort of musical interlude, all of these different things that are taking place. Clearly, they're not taking place simultaneously because the settings are different, right? Um, But they're all woven together so that they all kind of climax at the same time. Most likely that's what's going on here in the book of Deuteronomy. It's intentionally organized to tell all the stories at once. The succession of Joshua, the death of Moses, uh, and then Moses' 
final commission and giving of both this song and as we'll see in a second, the blessing to Israel. All at once, it tells the stories interwoven, jumping from scene to scene. But it also is appropriate here that this exhortation is given to Joshua because he's just told the people you're about to leave are an unfaithful and forsaking people. And God says, don't worry. Kind of like when he says to Abraham, Abraham, you will live to a ripe old age and you won't experience the slavery that will come on your children. And here it's, hey, Joshua, don't let this make you think that the plan is any different or that I'm going to pull out the rug from under you in this. Um, He's looking further down the pike, if you will. So verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So once again, we've jumped scenes. We've already told that he was writing down the book of the law, and now we see as commanded, he hands it over to the priest, and what's it to be? Just like the song we're about to read, a witness a witness, a testimony, okay? And so it's to go right next to the tabernacle or right in the tabernacle next to the ark, verse 27, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? One of the things we find in the book of Deuteronomy's conclusion, which is surprising, because there's a good deal of hope and excitement, is this almost pessimism, this negative approach. And you can't take it out of the text. It's clearly there. Moses says here, look, you guys have been so rebellious in my life. I know that you're going to be rebellious in generations to come. And so verse uh, 28, assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. And so what follows here in chapter 32 is the song that God had commissioned and had him write down. And here in chapter 32, he teaches it to the people. So let's read it together. He begins in verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. And so before he begins, he calls the heaven and the earth as witnesses, as he said just a few verses together. He says, pay attention, all world, right? Heaven and earth here is a merism. It's, it's not just a personification as witness one is heaven and witness two is earth. It's the heavens and the earth and everything in between. He calls it as witnesses and he says in verse two, may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech disp- distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herbs. Okay, so what do we see here? A comparison between what he's about to say, this song that he's given, and the effect that water has on plant life. Okay. May this be life-giving. May this bring growth. May it come to bear fruit would be a good way to put it. Isaiah uses a similar way of talking about uh, God's word in that famous passage when Isaiah says, speaking for God, for my word will not return void. It says it's like the spring uh, showers and the first rain that falls and brings life. It's the same idea here. So in verse 3, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord. 
Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. We'll see this title throughout uh, the book of Deuteronomy, throughout this song. It's not unique here to Deuteronomy. It's used all the way back in Genesis. But of course, the idea here of referring to God, the God of the scriptures as the rock, is of stability, faithfulness, of reliability. In the Psalms, David says, bring me to the rock that is higher than I, right? And so as he's drowning in danger, he can crawl up and find safety, security. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And so here we have, on one hand, God presented, faithful, just, upright, without iniquity, and then in response to that rock, the rock of Israel, we find the behavior of Israel. Verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they are blemished. They're a crooked and a twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? And so he provokes the foolishness here of Israel's rebellion. Your origin is with God. God gave you all of these abundance. He provided for you like a father. And yet you respond to him, you know, in these ways. And then there's a call to remember, verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now notice here, this song doesn't just go to the beginning of Israel, it goes to the beginning of time. Okay? When it mentions the sons of God here, the idea here is in the heavenly court. At that point, God predetermines the borders and boundaries, the timelines and the timetable for the nations. It's all laid out in advance. Okay? Uh, Paul says something similar when he's speaking to uh, the philosophers in Athens, that God has beforehand appointed the times and the boundaries in which the nations will live. But, verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is allotted heritage. So he hands out land to the nations, and then he takes a nation of Israel for himself. He says, you are my people. You're my inheritance, my portion. In fact, listen to the way it talks about this in verse 10. He found them in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, speaking of security. He cared for him, speaking of provision. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Now that saying has actually become common in English, and this is its origin in a Hebrew idiom, but we don't actually know what it means. Probably the best suggestion I've read is that it's referring to the pupil of your eye, right? Uh, in other words, something that's very near and dear to you, something you naturally protect, right? That's why we love to play that game as teenagers, don't flinch. It's impossible not to protect your eyes, okay? But it may be that the idea of apple of your eye is just something that you behold and value and have aspirations for, which is generally how we think of the term applying now. But he says that's unique of Israel. I've made you my treasure, he says in another place. Then look at this in verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. Okay, and so the idea here is of an eagle and the young that are just about to fly. And so it stirs up the nest so that they fall out, and then as they're falling, if they fail to fly, he swoops under them and catches them and brings them back up to the nest. Um, and so it's... it's um, 
parental care that's being emphasized here. Verse 12, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Now notice that line. When we read it first about produce and the fat of the land, we're thinking about the promised land. We're not there yet. He says that they enjoyed that life in the wilderness. So that it was like, um, like honey coming out of rocks and oil out of flint. Right? All of the abundance of the land in the midst of the wilderness. This is the God that they're turning from. Verse 14, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of grapes. All of this being a picture of the abundance of God's provision. But, verse 15, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Now notice Israel is referred to here as Jeshurun. That happens for the first time here, two more times in the book of Deuteronomy, and then we find it once in Isaiah chapter 44. It's just thrown in here. It's not really explained, but what the Hebrew word means is the upright one. Okay? In Isaiah 44, it's presented as this coming faithful Israel that unlike Israel, the nation will be my servant. Okay. And so he's referred to as Jeshurun, the true Jeshurun, if you will, the true upright one, speaking of the Messiah. But here it's used ironically. This is the ideal. They're to be the upright ones, the holy one, a kingdom of priests, the nation of Israel. But instead, the upright one grew fat and rebelled. Right, this is, this is cow imagery that we're using here. He grew fat and he kicked, fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook the God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They, being Israel, stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were not gods, to gods they'd never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Now, notice here, remember what we're doing. This is a song, a song that Israel is taught to sing, and so it starts by contrasting their rebellion with the good and faithful character of the God who gave them all they have, and now it moves on to the consequences, to judgment. And so the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocations of his sons and daughters. He said, I'll hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, a children in whom there is no faithfulness. They've made me jealous with what is no God. They've provoked me to anger with their idols. I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, the easiest way to read this when he says that I'm going to make them jealous with a no people in the same way that they made me jealous with no gods, with not gods, uh, is probably speaking of this judgment that Moses already talked about that will be final. When Assyria and Babylon ride in and take Israel captive and bring them out of the land, okay? In which case, no people, the idea here would be a people you've never heard of. But it's interesting that when Hosea is going about his ministry, he gives one of his children the name, not my people. 
picking up on this language in Deuteronomy, he extends it. And then we find it moving forward into the book of Romans. And Paul, in Romans chapter 9, quoting from Hosea, uh, recognizes that there's a greater fulfillment, not just in the exile of Israel, but actually in the incoming Gentiles, like us, in the church. That effectively, what God has done in Israel is through their judgment, I'm paraphrasing here from Romans 9, shown mercy on the whole world, and through that mercy, mercy on not my people, He will provoke his true people to jealousy and bring them back until, as Paul puts it, all Israel will be saved. But when Paul is talking about these things, he's not philosophizing or giving new revelation. He's tying this thread together that flows through the Old Testament from Deuteronomy into Hosea and to the end. And so even here, it seems that God's plan is to wake Israel up by showing or demonstrating his grace and his goodness to the nations that had no investment in God, who weren't even looking for him. Okay. Verse 22, For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundation of the mountains, and I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence, I'll send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror. For a young man and a woman alike, the nursing child with a man of gray hairs. Okay, those are merisms again. Okay, so women and men, that means everybody. From the young to the old, that means everybody. I would have said I'll cut them to pieces. I'll wipe them from human memory had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand. And he says one of the reasons here he's not going to bring Israel to total judgment is because the nations would look at that and go, evidence that we are so powerful, we wiped out Israel. Okay. Now there are other reasons he gives for not wiping out Israel. He promises through the prophets later, and he's already said in Deuteronomy, that he will provide a remnant. And even in the midst of judgment, He will do something good. And the prophets hammer that message. Isaiah does. Jeremiah does. Ezekiel does. Malachi does. Hosea does. Almost every prophet that speaks of judgment speaks beyond judgment to this time where Israel will be restored. But here we're given another perspective. That when these foreigners come in and wipe them out, they would uh, say, look at the end of verse 27 here, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. We're the powerful force. We're the conquerors. He wants the nations to know that he is God, and he will do that through the blessings and abundance and faithfulness of Israel, but he will also do it through the judgment he brings on Israel. And so he doesn't let the nation, even though the nation is his own tool of judgment, get away with it. That's what it says here in verse 28. For they're a nation void of counsel, and there's no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, unless the rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? He says if they really understood, they'd go, man, that was easy. (laughs) How was it that only one of our soldiers and hundreds were fleeing, and if there were two in the same place, thousands were fleeing? And he says, the obvious reason is because I'm no longer with them, because I've given them over to your hand. He continues here and he says, uh, notice this, for their rock 
is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Okay, Their rock, what's the reference there? To these little idols, to these rock gods. There's nothing in comparison to the rock, the real one, the capital R rock, as your translation probably puts it. Okay, And then he points out that these people, they're not only without understanding, they're without righteousness. So notice what it says. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are the grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter, the wine is of serpents, and the cruel venoms of asps. Um, and so he says their stock is corrupt, they're, uh, they're evil. This is the problem that Habakkuk has. Habakkuk is a short book, about three chapters, and it's best, basically a record of Habakkuk's prayer dialogue and God speaking and answering his questions. And so the first question Habakkuk asks, he says, God, how can you let Israel continue in their wickedness and not bring about consequences? He says, God, why are you being so patient when things are so off the rails? He says, there's so much injustice. There's so much bloodshed. There's so much idolatry. You have to do something. And God responds and he says, I have a plan and I haven't told you about it because you won't believe me. And Habakkuk says, what is it? And he says, I'm going to bring in the Babylonians. And they're going to bring judgment on the people. And Habakkuk says, I don't believe it. How could you do that? I mean, we're bad, but they're the worst. And God says, that's not the end of the story, but I will also bring just judgment on my tool of judgment on Israel. And Habakkuk comes out the side just worshiping God and his great sovereignty. And um, there we have recorded one of my favorite verses in the Bible where he says, if there's no olives on the trees... If all of life is desolate, still will I praise him. He goes, I just, it's too many layers deep. There's too many going on. There's plots behind plots behind plots. It's too much for me. But God's counsel will stand and it is good effectively. And so he makes the similar promise here. He says in verse 34, is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is hand, at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And so basically says he will justly use this tool for judgment in his hand, and then he will judge them for that judgment. Okay. For the Lord will vindicate, verse 36, his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, he will say, where are their gods, the rock which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. So the reminder here is, what the, the lesson that Israel learns is all of these false gods they've turned to can't deliver them from the true God's hand, can't provide for them, protect them, do all the things that false gods promise to do. And so he demonstrates to them the inability of their gods and then presents himself again afresh as the one true God. Verse 39, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand, for I lift up my hand to heaven, and I swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword, my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. So notice, all of that is not directed at Israel, but at the enemies of Israel, even though 
God used them to get Israel's attention. And then the song finishes finally with just abundant praise. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. And so we see the whole plan here is cathartic in its nature. It's to bring about cleansing in Israel, to expel and expunge idolatry um, from their practice. What I want you to notice about this song is that it's relevant at every point on the timeline. So when everything is good, this song acts as a warning. Do not forsake the Lord. When they're forsaking the Lord and there's not yet consequences, there's a warning here. Here's what comes next. As they're experiencing the consequences, there's a reminder, this is why this is happening. As it brings about judgment, there is a speaking of, this is exactly what you should have expected. And as God promises there to bring about judgment on the enemies, there's a promise of hope, okay? And even as Israel is restored into the land in books like Ezra and Nehemiah in the very end of Second Chronicles, this song reflects on the history and gives it meaning, explains it, and calls for them to praise the God who's done such a thing. So this song is given. One of the reasons we're called to sing One of the reasons why the Bible doesn't just give us the words of God, but as God's word, the words of men to sing back to him. Right? Have you reflected on that yet, that that's what this is? God writes a song to put in our mouths and to proclaim and speak to him. We find the same thing in the Psalms. In fact, in the book of Acts, Peter makes this explicit when he says, the Holy Spirit spoke by the prophet David and said, and then quotes from the Psalms. The Psalms are the most personal and human of all the scriptures. They express the heart and the emotions, the fears, the challenges, the prayer requests, and the struggles of human beings, but they are the word of God in the mouth of men, divinely given so that we would have the words in our own struggles and fears and prayers to express back to God. And so that's how this song is to operate. And it's one of the reasons why we not only recite psalms as a church, but also sing. We sing songs to uh, praise God, but we also, according to the book of Colossians, are called to sing songs to one another. When we sing them, we sing them publicly as a witness and a reminder of who God is to those sitting next to us who may need to be reminded of who God is. And so the song finishes here, verse 44. Moses came and recited the words of the song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. Verse 48, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up to this mountain of Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. Okay. Now we should hear in that two different thoughts. One is of God's faithfulness. Go up and see the land because I will give it to the people. But we should also hear God's faithfulness and judgment to Moses. Go up and see the land because you will not enter into it. In fact, notice what it says next, verse 50, and die. 
That's what God tells him to do. Go up on the mountain and die. The only other time we find this phrase parsed in this way is when Job's wife, throughout, through all of her frustration, just says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? It's strong wording. Here's Moses, the faithful man of Israel, and God is being relatively blunt. In fact, notice what it says next. Die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron and your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke the faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel in the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. So you may remember the occasion. Israel is once again complaining for water and God says, Moses, go and speak to the rock and water will come forth. And he comes out and he says, you rebellious people, do I have to strike this rock again and give you water? That's it. That's what leads to this tremendous act of judgment. That's what keeps Moses out of the promised land. Now, it's, we're told here why it is. It's that he didn't treat God as holy. He, standing in as a representative, falsely represented who God was. Moses was angry. God was not. God was the giver of water, but Moses acts as he's the one who gives water. He's called only to speak to the rock, and instead he strikes it. Okay. But nonetheless, it's a very serious sentence. It might even bother us. It might even seem unfair. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that God holds leaders to a higher standard. In fact, in the book of James, James warns us that not many of us should aspire to be teachers because teachers will be held to a stricter judgment. Those who deign to represent God are called to represent him faithfully. And so here he doesn't enter into the land. He's called here to walk up the mountain and die because of this. Verse 52, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, once again, the scene shifts to Moses' death and then it shifts away. And maybe one way to read what happens next is that he gets to the base of the mountain, he turns around before he's about to ascend the mountain, and he speaks one last time to Israel. And what he does is effectively a benediction. In fact, if you think of the book of Deuteronomy kind of like a church service, and it's appropriate to do so because it's Moses' final sermon calling them in application to obedience. It's the entire congregation of Israel. It's the same word in the Greek Septuagint that we use for church when it says the assembly of Israel here. And then it ends effectively with a benediction. You see, oftentimes churches like ours end their services with a benediction. And a benediction is not just a reading of scripture. It's a proclaiming of the truth of Scripture over the people. It's a blessing of benediction. And that's what we find Moses doing here with the 12 tribes of Israel. It's very comparable to what Jacob does as he gathers his 12 sons around him and speaks blessing over them in Genesis 49. In fact, there's some direct references to that passage in the following blessings. Okay? There's some plays on that, both in contrast and in comparison. But either way, Moses' death is presented to us again, and we see the final thing Moses does before his life is over is he blesses the people of Israel. Now, I actually think that's really beautiful. 
Like I said, Deuteronomy 31 through 34 is as if God says, okay, Moses, get your house in order. It's time to die. What are the things he does? He gives one final commendation to Israel. He hands over and encourages his replacing leader, Joshua. He gives them this song so that they would sing and it would act as a warning to them. And then he blesses them. What I love about Moses here, and although there is a negative and constant reminder of his failure in this passage, there's also a tremendous applause of his faithfulness, as we'll see especially in the final chapter. And what I love about Moses here is that he's, to the very end, a shepherd of these people, a lover of the people of Israel, devoted to them, wanting them to go and get what God has for them, And so he ends here by speaking a blessing over them. Now, the last thing that we should mention is these blessings operate not merely as positive wishes, but proclamation of good, okay? And so as we saw in Genesis 49, the words of Jacob aren't just insightful into his children's character, they're prophetic. In fact, we find one of the references to the fact that it will be through the line of Judah that Messiah Jesus will come. In the mouth of Jacob, the elderly, before he crawls into his bed and dies. Okay. In the same way here, the things that Moses speaks here are blessings, but it's not, just, it's not just, I hope these things happen. There's proclamation involved. He speaks again as God's representative. And so verse 1 of chapter 33, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, now before we get to the blessings, we've got to touch on that. Here he's referred to as the man of God. It's the title that's given to him. It's not, Moses isn't the only one who receives this title. We find it in a few other places. But notice here what it speaks of. Speaking of a man of God is a similar way of saying a godly man, right? A man who represents God. And so there's this reminder of who he is here. It's almost, it's almost like what we have here is a funeral, because this is all Israel gets, right? Nobody's going to be there. There's no viewing of the corpse. Nobody's present at the burial. That's where we're going. And so here we have somewhat of an editorial eulogy just kind of dropped in in places. But even here I'm struck because Moses' part in this final funeral is also a eulogy. But he speaks good over the people of Israel. So the man of God blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hands, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And so we see God here in power and brightness and presence, and we also see him with the holy ones, which is a title for angels. This is the place uh, that leads to the tradition and the statement in the New Testament that the law, like it says in the book of Hebrews, was given by the mediation of angels. Okay? Here we see that they're involved in what happens at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. Okay. Verse 4, when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. So there's that title again, Jeshurun, upright one. But here it's used in a, not in a negative sense. 
But when Israel began as a nation, they began with God as king. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together, and now he blesses tribe by tribe, beginning with Reuben. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. Okay, and so many of these blessings involve future battles. And the idea here is let them stand on the day of battle. But then it points out and it says, but let his men be few, uh, recognizing what we actually see in Israel's history, that the tribe of Reuben declines in size extensively. And this he said of Judah, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. Okay, Uh, that second line, bring him in, to his people is actually bring him before the people. The idea here is that Judah, being the first in rank, is at the front of the battle. They're the first one to go into battle. They're at the front of the lines. And so the prayer here, the blessing is let God fight for him and be a help against his adversaries. Now, a side note, we should mention that one of the sons of Israel is missing in these blessings, and that's Simeon. He's not mentioned. Probably... The significance of that is actually in Simeon's fate that they deteriorate so much they're only referenced after the book of Joshua one more time in Israel's history and by then they've almost been completely consumed into the nation of Judah. They don't have their own land. They're kind of coexisting in Judah. But they're missing from the list. Next we find Levi and notice here that Levi is much longer. Reuben two lines. Judah two lines, Levi here gets eight lines. We'll see the same thing with the sons of Joseph. And so Levi, give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one whom you tested at Massa, who you quarreled with at the waters of Meribah. Okay, Massa and Meribah are the two places where the Levites stood up for the Lord and rightly represented him. Now, as we read through this, we also learn a lot about the Levitical role in Israel. We've talked about it much, but it, we see it in three different parts here. First, with the Urim and Thummim, right? This was this mysterious device. We don't know what it was, um, but it was something that was kept in the breastplate of the high priest and used for discerning the Lord's will. And so that's one of the things that they're given to Israel for. The Levites are to provide divine direction And then notice verse 9, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. That's the second thing that the Levites were to do. In fact, they didn't have a territory in the land of Israel, but were scattered throughout Israel and would be regularly and consistently teaching the people the law. Now, when Israel returns to the land under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they gather in Jerusalem for the reading of the law during the Feast of Booths, just like we were talking about. And Ezra reads aloud so all the people can hear, and then the Levites explain the sense of it to those who are around them. Okay, And so they were to be the teachers of Israel, teaching them the law and reminding them of it. And then finally, Halfway through verse 10, they shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. They, of course, were the priests who were responsible for the sacrifices and the incense and everything that happened in the tabernacle. So we get a good summary here for what the Levitical priesthood actually did. They provided guidance through the Urim and Thummim. They taught the people of Israel and they took care of the tabernacle and assisted in Israel's worship. 
Verse 11, bless, O Lord, his substance, accept the work of his hands, crush the loins of his adversary of those who hate him, and they who rise not again. So once again, the blessing here is in military victory. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. Now don't miss the significance of that. Remember Benjamin's story. Jacob's most beloved wife, Rachel, had two kids, Joseph, and then in a pregnancy that killed her, Benjamin. The pregnancy was so hard and uh, she knew, Rachel knew that she was losing her life and so she says, call him Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. And he says, no, 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 that's not going to stand. Instead, he's Benjamin, my beloved son, the son of his father, okay? And so here, that name is played on for the blessing, but he's not just the beloved of Jacob. Let him be the beloved of the Lord. The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. Now that imagery can be hard to get. The idea here is not back here, like the small of your back between your shoulders, but up here. In other words, God will wrap his arms around him in protection, okay? Uh, And then of Joseph. Now remember, Joseph makes up two tribes, often called the half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they're handled together here. But even here, there's a play on words. Manasseh, and by the way, his name becomes the stand-in for both tribes eventually. In fact, sometimes it's used as a stand-in for all of the northern tribes of Israel. Um, His name means fruitful. And so here this blessing plays specifically on his name. And of Joseph, he said, blessed by the Lord be his land, which is the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills with the best gifts of the earth and all its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. Now notice the title there. That's referencing the burning bush. They have all this abundance and blessing because of the God who dwelt in the bush, going all the way back to the beginning of Exodus. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who's the prince among his brothers. Now that's a reference as well. That's one of the promises that was made about Joseph, remember? That his brothers would bow down to him, that he would be a prince among his brothers. And that idea is pushed forward here in the blessing. Okay, and so may he have so much abundance that it would be royal is the idea here. Verse 17, a firstborn bull, he has majesty and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With him he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. Okay, and so once again, military victory. And then notice this, they are ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Okay, now in normal Hebrew poetry, usually things work in the opposite direction, okay? So take this song that people sing about David and Saul. Do you remember it? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, right? When you say things like this, you ramp up to the big number, but this one goes the opposite way, and the reason is once again found in Genesis 49, okay? After, God, or after Jacob has blessed all of his children, he brings in Joseph's two sons to bless him, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph, knowing how things are supposed to work, angles it so his older son, um, Ephraim, I'm making sure here. No, sorry, his older son, Manasseh, is on the right-hand side of his father and Ephraim on the left-hand so that his oldest son can get the greater blessing. 
And Jacob reaches out and crosses his hand and gives the greater blessing to the younger, which is a pattern we find throughout Genesis. That pattern is being played on here. And so here, it's the younger who will have his, th- or the older who will have his thousands, Manasseh, but ten thousands to Ephraim. Abundance to Manasseh, but abundance of abundance to Ephraim. Okay. And then Zebulon, verse 18, of Zebulon, he said, Rejoice, Zebulon, in your going out, and Issachar, they're put here together, Zebulon and Issachar, in your tents. They shall call people to their mountain There they shall offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sands. Now, Zebulon and Issachar settle in the northern part of Israel between two great seas, the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and so there's a recognition here that they will be the fishermen. They will be the ones that bring abundance from the seas, both seas, which is where they settle between them. And of Gad, he said, blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Notice there that the blessing is not actually on Gad, but a a blessing on the God who blesses Gad, okay? Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. Very violent imagery, but once again speaking of victory and war. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved, and he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the judgment of the Lord the justice of the Lord and the judgments for Israel. Here's what this is talking about when it says he chose the best of the land and then fought for Israel. Remember Gad, along with a few other half-tribes, settled outside the promised land. In fact, they've already left their families behind in this land, and when they enter into Israel, the men will go to war, but they've already received their inheritance. That's what it's recognizing here, and it's commending his faithfulness in not leaving behind his brethren, but going into the land and fighting for them. And then Dan, verse 22. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's club, cub that leaps from Bashan. Okay. And so Dan is also uh, compared here to a lion, just like Gad was. And of Naphtali, verse 23, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. Now, we're pretty sure that word lake is actually misspelled and that it's west. And the reason I say that is because the words in Hebrew are tremendously close, and we know that that's where Naphtali ends up settling, in the southwest. Okay? If it's referring here to a lake, we don't know what lake it's referring to. Okay? Uh, verse 24 of Asher. And of Asher, he said, now what does na- the name Asher means? It means happy or blessed. Okay. And so of Asher, he said, most blessed be the sons of blessed. That's what that line reads there in the Hebrew. Let him be the favorite of his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil. Okay. So that's favor and abundance. And then notice the next one, your bars shall be iron and bronze. Okay. The idea here is the, um, the bolts of your door. Okay. It's a picture of security. Remember, iron and bronze are incredibly rare in this time. Okay? But they're going to be so secure, it's as if they have you know, um, strong, uh, strong enforced doors. As your, and as your days, so shall your strength be. In other words, as long as you'll be around, you'll be strong. So all of these children are blessed, and then he finishes where he started, blessing the God behind the blessings. There is none like God, O Jeshurun who rides through the heavens to your help through the skies in his majesty. 
The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he thrusts out the enemy before you. Notice the perspective there is kind of pan-dimensional. And so here, the eternal God is your dwelling place. God is all around them. Underneath are the everlasting arms, holding them up from underneath, and then he will go out before you uh, and thrust out the enemy. In other words, all of their victory, all of their protection, all of their goodness comes from God. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who's like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. Okay, and so Moses here speaks of all of the blessings that come with the covenant, assigns them out by tribe and reminds them of the God who's giving them all these things. And that finally brings us to the last chapter here in chapter 34. And so if we can picture this, he finishes this, and I imagine it's a somewhat solemn occasion, and he turns his back on Israel and begins the long ascent, long ascent up the mountains. And so then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pigsah, which is opposite Jericho. Now, remember, that's where Joshua picks up. So he looks into the very heart of the land and he sees this great fortress city of Jericho right in the center. Um, these, this mountain range that's being referred to is right on the edge of and in the center of north to south the land. And so from the top, he can see all the way up into Galilee and beyond and all the way south to the Dead Sea and to Jerusalem. And he can also see all of the settling of the land of Gad. Uh, he can see all of this from this height. And so it says here in uh, verse 1, the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now don't forget, Moses has never been here. He was born in Egypt. He grew up in Egypt. He spent 40 years in Midian as a, as a, as a shepherd. He's come to the edge of the land at the beginning of those 40 years. But because of the rebellion of the people, they turn back and go into the wilderness. This is the first time he's seen the promises he's been preaching and faithfully leading people towards his whole life. Okay. And so he says, This is the land I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Now, once again, there's, there's justice and there's sadness in this reality. But it is worth remembering that we do find Moses entering into the land. In Luke chapter 9, we find what we often call the transfiguration, this occasion where Jesus takes three of his disciples up a mountain and then he's changed, transformed before them in brightness. And not only is Jesus standing there in all of his glory, but also Elijah and Moses, okay? That mountain is right in the heart of the promised land. And here he stands and he speaks with Jesus about his coming exodus, okay? But up to the point of his death, he doesn't enter in. He only sees verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. Who is the pronoun referring to there? Who buried him in the land of Moab? God did. God calls him up. He doesn't die of old age or disease or anything like that. 
his life just ends, and then whatever happens with the body is something that God does. In fact, it emphasizes this, and it says, uh, finishing here, verse 6, he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now, that's probably why Jewish tradition speculated on the body of Moses extensively across their history, because this is somewhat mysterious. And so some rabbis argued that that Moses actually wasn't dead, but kind of like Elijah later, ascended directly into heaven. Now that goes against the clear reading of the scripture here. Um, But it does lead us to one really interesting thing that we find in the New Testament in the book of Jude. Jude is actually talking about false prophets. And he says that they have no respect of authority, just, or not recognizing that even when Michael, this is what it says in Jude 9, was contending with the devil over the body of Moses, he said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't, Call, uh, call Satan a slanderer or handle it on his own. He leaves it completely in the Lord's hands. But we read that in the New Testament and we go, wait, what? Okay, first off, Michael. The only place that Michael is mentioned in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel. Not Deuteronomy, not here. And so this comes up in Jude and most likely what he's referring to is not found here in Deuteronomy but in a book known as... Um, Uh, as the Ascension of Moses, which is not a book we have a single copy of, but we find uh, the early church fathers referencing on occasion. In fact, I would argue, because that's not the only non-biblical book that Jude quotes. The other one is known as the Book of Enoch. It's another apocryphal work um, that he quotes in his book, that he's utilizing these books because they illustrate to his audience. It's almost like if we said to somebody who practiced the religion of Islam, even the Quran says, right? We're not necessarily validating the Quran. We're saying, look, even the own books you're reading, right? In, in other words, uh, we will talk more about this in the book of Jude in six years. Uh, but, but I just want you to notice that he's not referencing here something that the Bible talks about here in Deuteronomy, but something else, Okay. But nonetheless, there's this semi-mysterious reality, and maybe it's pretty easy to understand why this would be the case. What would happen to the tomb of Moses? It'd very easily become a place of veneration and worship. It is easy to argue that Moses is the most significant character in the entire history of Israel. Maybe you could make a case that David is more significant. But this is Moses, the first prophet, the leader of Israel, right? The one uh, who led them so profoundly. And, and so it's almost here as if God not only removes Moses from earth, but removes him from history so that Israel gets the picture of this transition. It's not going to be Moses or praying to Moses that's going to get you through this. It's the God of Moses that's going to get you through. Now notice this in verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died, but his eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. Okay. Now, eyes were undimmed is pretty easy. We could say the equivalent, he still has 20-20 vision. Right? His, his eyesight didn't deteriorate with his age. 
And then when it says when his vigor is unabated, it means one of two things. Either he was just full of life. You shouldn't think of him moving up the mountain with a walker, you know, scraping tennis balls along the path, barely making it to the top before he collapses. He's healthy. He hikes a mountain the day he dies, okay? Um, But it also might say, effectively, his skin was without wrinkles, in other words, his body was tremendously young looking. It's hard to tell from the Hebrew. We don't, we don't actually know. But clearly the point here uh, is that God, just like he preserved the shoes of Israel, he preserved Moses for this task. And he was healthy to the day, end of his days. And then the second emphasis, very clearly, is Moses doesn't die of natural causes. He dies because God takes his life. And actually, that's always true. Whether God uses natural causes or not. Did you hear what it said in the song of Israel? Back in chapter 32. Uh, God says in verse 39, I kill and I make alive. Okay. And so here the days uh, and the life and the leadership of Moses ends. But God's plan doesn't. Right? God's story doesn't die with Moses. God's plan or his people doesn't die with Moses. And so we leave Moses behind uh, and then we see the mourning of Israel. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. If I remember right, that's the exact same time that they mourn not only for Aaron but also for Miriam. So that makes us believe that this was the normal mourning time for Israelites, a single month, okay? And so notice this. Here they are on the land, Moses gives this command, and then they stay put for another month on the border of the land, just mourning and recognizing um, the leadership of Moses. And now we get to the transition, verse 9. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Okay, and so the idea here is that the same wisdom that Moses had has been passed on to Joshua And it says, because Moses laid hands on him. Now, most likely that's not some sort of magical transference, like static electricity passing from one body to another. Laying on of hands has to do with identification. God calls Joshua to be a leader to replace Moses. Moses sets his hand on him and publicly recognizes Joshua as the leader. In fact, we find the laying on of hands not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. And so that's how... Timothy is to appoint elders in the church in Ephesus by the laying on of hands. In fact, that's how Timothy himself was sent out under Paul's recommendation to Ephesus, by the laying on of hands. And so it's a recognition of identification. God has chosen you and we recognize that choice. And here it's also a recognition of the transference of authority. But here he's not just given the position, he's given the ability. Divinely, he's given wisdom to lead the people. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Then notice this in verse 10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. Okay. Now I want you to notice this is the second time in this chapter we've had a time stamp. The earlier one was nobody knows where he's buried to this very day. Okay. So that statement shows some passage of time. Even to our time, effectively, this final editor says, we don't know where Moses is buried. And in the same way here, even to our time, a prophet like Moses hasn't arisen. 
All I'm pointing out to you is we can see a later timestamp, and there are some very smart scholars that argue that we can know when that timestamp is because of the geography of the nations in the blessing chapter we read. Okay? That effectively, it has to be after the migration of Dan and before the unification of the kingdom under Samuel. In other words, the days of the judges. Okay? Um, but nonetheless, we see these, these interesting timestamps here. Um, and the idea here is Moses said, the Lord will raise up, raise up another prophet like me. And here the final editor of these, this appendix says, but we haven't seen it yet. And then it tells us once again what was so unique about Moses. Look at verse 11. Uh, None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all the land. In fact, jumping back, uh, verse 10, there's not a risen a prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. Okay, so signs, wonders, miracles leading the redemption of Israel and also the one who the Lord knew face to face. Now, this expectation for a prophet like Moses sustains and maintains through Israel and even though they have prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Malachi or Elijah, all who are of great significance, this idea of looking for the one like Moses sustains even to the days of Jesus. So when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? One of the titles that they say, well, some people say you are, is the prophet. The one like Moses, the one that's expected. The reason I bring this up here is because I want you to notice that we seem at this very final few verses of Deuteronomy to see this same messianic anticipation, right? Deuteronomy is not just a book that lays the foundation, it's a book that looks forward and it looks past the faithlessness and judgment of Israel to the provision of something new. In fact, as we've seen on a few occasions, it takes the initial covenant and it looks forward to both the falling short of that covenant and the longing for the new covenant. And so it ends here with a picture, a pointing, a subtle one, but a picture and a pointing to the coming Messiah. Notice also that these final verses act as an epitaph for Moses. Let's read it again in that sense, starting in verse 10. There's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. The significance of Moses shouldn't be lost on us. Just, just reflect on this. This was pointed out to me today in a commentary I was reading. Moses' story spans four books. Right? Moses' life begins in Exodus and his leadership flows through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way to Deuteronomy. It's difficult to compare that to any other character. Right? I mean, we can, uh, we can look at Samuel and we say, well, there's First and Second Samuel, but not in the Hebrew count. That's one book. We just got tired of having such a big book, so we split it. Okay? And you go, well, Paul has all of his letters, but the only book that really tells the story of Paul is the book of Acts, and he only gets half the book. The significance of Moses uh, should not be forgotten here, but, but we should always remember the one that is greater than Moses, the one that the prophets go here and in Deuteronomy 18, and then later on point forward to, and the one that Hebrews reminds us, the one that's better than Moses, 
It was only mediation with angels when the law was given, but when Jesus Christ comes, it's God in the flesh as sole mediator, right? And so in Moses, to close tonight, we have a type of Christ, a picture of the one who is to come. And like every other type of Christ we find in the Old Testament, every other picture, it's not filled in all the way. It's flawed. Moses never enters into the promised land. Moses' covenant can't accomplish the salvation of God. For that, Jesus himself has to come, just like Joshua does, and lead us in to all the promises, because as Paul says, all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. So now we can celebrate. We've finished the Pentateuch. We're done with the law. Um, Just a very quick note. Next week, we will do as we have done so far. We will have a night of worship We will read again from Deuteronomy. We will pray and we will praise God and reflect on what we've learned from his word. The following week, the 13th, we will not be meeting. And then we will begin the book of Joshua on the 20th. Um, If you think of it, the next few weeks, I'm going to be in Paris teaching in a small Bible college. I'd appreciate your prayers. Um, And I'm hoping hoping to write a little bit while I'm there about uh, just reflections on my trip. Not only will I be teaching at the school, but I'm also going to be working on writing a manuscript that I'm working on, and uh, hanging out with a church that's been in Paris for 20 years. Uh, And so when I travel, I like to write reflections and kind of share what I'm learning. And so if you're interested in checking that out, um, friend me on Facebook, uh, and you can follow along. Let's pray. God, the entire Pentateuch proclaims your faithfulness, and I feel that resonating again as we have finished Uh, all five books of the Torah tonight, and I reflect on your faithfulness to have taken us this far. We thank you for your word that you desire to be known, and so you wrote it down in a book and you handed handed it to us, and like Moses said, that the word of knowing you is not far off that we would have to go to heaven to find it or cross a sea to know it, Lord, but it's right here in our midst. You've given it to us in your word, and more profoundly for us as Christians, You've given it to us in your Son, the Word who became flesh. And so as Paul says in the book of Romans, it's near and in our hearts and we can respond to it in full, uh, full full-bodied worship and repentance and rejoicing today. I pray that we would do so, Lord. I ask that you would continue to um, lay the foundation in our hearts of the book of Deuteronomy both of your goodness and your faithfulness, your character and your love and your provision, and also of the holiness of your law, our failure to keep it, our need for a savior, and the promise of one to come that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Deepen deepen our understanding of these things, and I pray, Lord, that they would flow into our lives in every facet in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.